1: This year has seen some exciting and revealing discoveries relating to the mysterious megalith builders of Britain and Ireland. Archaeologists have discovered the largest prehistoric structure in the world, right next to Stonehenge, and genetic scientists have uncovered revealing clues about the social structure and appearance of these late Stone Age people. So who are the Neolithic people of the megalith culture? And where did they come from? the Mesolithic, Britain, like all of Western Europe, had been sparsely inhabited by a race of swarthy, blue-eyed hunter-gatherers who geneticists call Western hunter-gatherers. Their neighbours in Anatolia, the Anatolian hunter-gatherers, invented farming and gradually colonised limited areas of Europe. Their lifestyle included a primitive form of grain farming and animal domestication, including the first domestic cows, which descend from wild aurochs. The people, known as early European farmers, spread along the Danube valley and the Mediterranean coastline, reaching the Atlantic coast about 7,000 years ago. Neolithic Europe was not very diverse since everyone descended from these few Anatolian migrants but as people settled and became isolated from each other they became culturally and genetically distinct. The main early Neolithic cultures were the impressed ware culture of the south and the linear pottery or LBK cultures of central Europe. These all developed into other archaeological cultures and some even survived into the historic era, Namely, the people who settled in the islands of Greece to develop the Cycladian culture and the Minoan civilization. The first farmers in Britain were mainly people from the Mediterranean Impressed Ware culture, rather than Central European farmers. The main difference genetically is that while most Neolithic Europeans had very little Western hunter gatherer DNA, only about 5%, the people in the south of France had over 30%. However, when looking at the maternal haplogroups from skeletons in the early 7th millennium cemetery of Gergy in the Yonne Valley on the southeastern side of the Paris basin, we see that the French Neolithic farmers had started mixing with the LBK ones. So the people who colonised Britain and Ireland were likely a mix of the two groups of farmers and they arrived in Britain about 4,000 or 3,800 BC. A recent paper shows that the British Neolithic people were connected to the Mediterranean Neolithic world not only via a maritime Atlantic coastal route, uh, as the more recent paper from Cassidy and colleagues has claimed, and which explains their genetic affinity with Neolithic Iberians, but also, and more plausibly, via land routes from Normandy and Central and Southern France. Modern British people are about 55% descended from Neolithic Europeans, but most of this does not come from Neolithic British people, but rather LBK descended Neolithic populations, such as those associated with the globular amphora culture of Poland. This was because over 90% of the Neolithic British people were completely replaced, about 1500 years after they first arrived, by an invading race associated with the Bell Beaker culture. And you can learn more about that in a video I made on the subject. The Neolithic people of Britain differed from other Neolithic European farmers in their paternal lineages analysis of male neolithic british skeletons dna does not show that their Y haplogroups which reveal the genetic lineages along their paternal line belong to g2 or other haplogroups associated with the near east like the other men in europe had at the time but instead they all carry i2a2 and other i2 derived lineages which come from the indigenous western hunter gatherers now that means That although most of their overall DNA came from Anatolia, the male lineages of the Anatolian immigrants were all replaced in Britain and Ireland by those of the native hunter-gatherer males who bred with the immigrant women. In the Mesolithic, Britain was connected to Europe, but Ireland was not, and that's why Mesolithic hunter-gatherers in Ireland were quite inbred. But when we look at the DNA from a Neolithic woman uh, found in Ballynahatty, Northern Ireland, which was analysed back in 2016, we can find that it has low runs of homozygosity, which means she was not inbred and she came from a decent-sized gene pool, indicating that she descended from a large-scale and likely organised mass migration of Neolithic colonisers into Britain and Ireland. Therefore... Geneticists had no reason to expect to find evidence of inbreeding in the Neolithic, but they were in for a surprise. The way of life for British Neolithic people was based on the destruction of vast forests, settlement expansion and life in large communal rectangular houses. But the most definitive aspect of their world, something which survives even to this day, are the amazing megalithic monuments like Stonehenge and the various kinds of stone-chambered tombs. But where did this tradition come from? An old theory was that the megalith culture spread to Britain all the way from the Near East but these days archaeologists generally prefer a more plausible theory which has risen to prominence since the 1970s in which the megalithic culture was a Western European phenomenon that began in Northwestern France between 6 and 7,000 years ago and spread across the Atlantic really quickly in just two or three hundred years perhaps as part of a new religion. Northwestern France had large earthworks up to 280 meters long around 4900 BC demonstrating massive social organization. They are the only large earthworks in Europe that directly precede the megalith construction, and later megaliths are often associated with accompanying earthworks. The custom quickly spread north and south along the Atlantic coast into Britain and Iberia, while also jumping into Sardinia, and then spread by land into the French interior and up to Scandinavia, and finally it experienced an early Bronze Age revival in Italy and Sicily, and even Britain but this revival is actually associated with the Bell Beaker people rather than the original megalith builders. It is clear from the spread of the culture along the Atlantic and Mediterranean and from evidence of gene flow along the Atlantic that the megalith builders were proficient seafarers. The two most famous megalithic structures are Stonehenge in England and Newgrange in Ireland so let's look at them. At 5200 years old it is among the oldest and most magnificent structures of the megalith culture. Early construction at Stonehenge began a couple of hundred years after Newgrange. The same Neolithic race built all the stone circles in the British Isles, including the Standing Stones of Stenness which are roughly contemporary with Newgrange, and the Ring of Brodgar, both in the Orkney Islands north of Scotland which I visited 10 years ago. Please excuse the shaky old footage. They are adjacent to a passage tomb of the same type as Newgrange, called Maze Howe. This tomb is aligned to the winter solstice, so that its interior is illuminated by the sun on just one day of the year, exactly the same as at Newgrange, which is over 380 miles away. Archaeologist Stephen Shannon believes that the Neolithic Orcadians were influenced by the passage tomb builders of Ireland. The passage tomb tradition is much older even than the pyramids and according to a new study which we will look at later in this video, seems to have been associated with inbred god-kings. Passage tombs are all aligned according to annual solar events such as winter or summer solstice which reveals that the culture was hyper-conscious of the seasons and somehow related the position of the sun to the fate of the souls of the dead. It is common in many cultures for the annual cycles to be compared to cycles of life and death. Perhaps the shining of the sun through the passage of Newgrange on the winter solstice was thought to stimulate the rebirth of the souls of the dead interred within. Just as the sun was to be reborn for a new solar year, some have tried to connect the spiral shaped patterns on the inside and outside of the tomb to a belief of this sort. It is possible the passage tomb tradition developed from the more simple and smaller dolmen type tombs which were first built around 7000 years ago and are common across Atlantic Europe from Spain to Scotland. These were single-chamber neolithic tombs made from several large stones supporting a roof stone. Originally all would have been covered with an earth mound but most are fully exposed today like Spinster's Rock in Dartmoor. Like most megalithic monuments this one has accumulated local folklore over the centuries. Locals say this dolmen was erected in a single night by three wool-spinning women likely the Witches the Norse knew as the Norns and who Shakespeare referred to as the Weird Sisters. It is easy to see how these developed as powerful kings would demand larger and more elaborate versions of these burial chambers. The Long Barrow is another variant which developed from the dolmen. These more elaborate stone constructions are also sometimes chambered and are always much larger than dolmens. They were also covered in earth, but with an exposed stone entrance like a passage tomb. Wayland Smithy in England is one of the most famous of all and is associated with Anglo-Saxon folklore. There are over 40,000 long barrows surviving in Europe today. But the most famous megalithic structure is the Stone Circle. It is hard to explain these structures with a single theory since some appear to have been lived in while others were not, some contain burials and others don't, some have no clear astrological alignment while others, like stone hens, are aligned towards the position of the sun on the winter solstice, just as Newgrange is. There are approximately 1,300 stone circles in Britain and Ireland, and Stonehenge is the most impressive, although Avebury is much larger. Stonehenge is a unique combination of a stone circle and an earthen henge, and is very much distinct from any other megalithic monument. The earliest construction at Stonehenge began over 5,000 years ago, but the enormous monument was altered and added to over the course of over 1000 years. The final stages saw 30 enormous sarsen stones brought in from 25 miles away, four of which still have their three lintels above. This period coincided with the arrival of a new race in Britain, one which would replace the original megalith builders within just a few generations. In fact the final stages of work in the Bronze Age at Stonehenge when the stones were all moved around into their current configuration were certainly done entirely by the invaders since the original Megalith builders were wiped out by then. The nearby Woodhenge was also built after the Beaker people replaced the Megalith people. It is clearly based on Stonehenge. Both have entrances oriented to the midsummer sunrise. Parker Pearson speculated that the living wooden circle was the centre of a land of the living, whilst the stone circle represented a land of the dead. This interpretation has influenced recent speculation about the purpose of the newly discovered Megahenge of Durrington, in which the Woodhenge as well as the Durrington walls are situated. At least 20 shafts, over 10 metres in diameter and 5 metres deep, were found to form part of an enormous circle, likely marking out some kind of sacred space. It has tentatively been dated to 4500 years ago, which is roughly the time of the invasion of the Beaker Folk, so it is hard to tell which people built it at this stage. It was either a final stage of the megalithic culture's most famous work, the Stonehenge Complex, or it was a new monument from the Bell Beaker invaders, intended to rival and even outdo the megalithic structures of the previous inhabitants of Britain. The 2 kilometer circle was accompanied by an internal post line to mark a boundary and to guide the worshippers to the other monuments within. This fascinating archaeological discovery in England coincided with equally fascinating genetic discoveries about the Neolithic people of Britain and Ireland. The aforementioned study by Cassidy and colleagues looked at genomes from 44 ancient skeletons including one 5,000 year old sample from within the most elaborate recess of Newgrange. Labelled NG10, it was discovered that he was the son of parents who were so closely related that they were likely either brother and sister or father and daughter. This kind of inbreeding is always taboo in cultures around the world, but when we do see it, it is usually among a semi-divine elite of god-kings whose divine lineage must be preserved by breaking the taboo of incest. We see a similar thing among the ancient Egyptian pharaohs civilization flourished a little after that of the megalith builders. King Tut was discovered to have been so inbred that he was disabled. The new study also identified relatives of the inbred Newgrange god-king within two other passage tomb complexes. Carrowmore and Keel, are about 150 kilometers west of Newgrange and they predate the construction of Newgrange by several centuries it was discovered that these related elites from passage tombs formed a genetic cluster distinct from the common folk around them. As I mentioned earlier, it was already discovered back in 2016 that normal megalithic people were not inbred at all, which makes it seem highly probable that this inbred elite did not observe the taboos which restricted the behaviour of normal people. This divinely distinguished caste, was powerful enough to command the labour of the large populations necessary for the construction of such enormous monuments. The inbred God-King was between 25 and 40 years old and showed no signs of arthritis from heavy labour like most men from that time do. We can dispense with outdated ideas of Neolithic egalitarian societies around Stonehenge, What we are seeing is evidence of a clearly hierarchical, maybe even caste based society which preserves patrilineally defined elites in a very patriarchal way long before the Indo-Europeans show up. The authors of the paper also speculated as to whether knowledge of this Neolithic inbreeding was passed down from Megalith Builder to Beaker folk, and all the way down to medieval Celts who preserved myths of it. There are several passage tombs in the Valley of the Boyne, including Newgrange, and medieval myths relate their construction to magical manipulations of the solar cycle by a tribe of Celtic gods. A myth recorded in the 11th century describes a Builder King who restarts the daily solar cycle by having sex with his own sister. The Douth passage tomb next to Newgrange used to be named Verta Kühle after this very myth and this translates as the Hill of Incest. But perhaps equally shocking and also somewhat speculative is not the survival of myth from the Neolithic through to the Beaker invasion and the Iron Age and all the way to medieval times but the possibility that Mesolithic hunter-gatherer customs survived in the traditions of the invading megalith builders. I already mentioned that British Neolithic men all had haplogroups from the indigenous hunter-gatherer men, which means that every megalith builder could trace their paternal lineage back to the indigenous western hunter-gatherers, rather than to the Anatolian men from whom most of their DNA was derived. But the new paper from Cassidy and colleagues, published in June 2020, also looked at the entire genomes of four Neolithic samples, three from early to middle Neolithic Argyll in Western Scotland, and one from the court tomb of Parc in Western Ireland, which had higher levels of indigenous hunter-gatherer ancestry than expected. Much like in southern France. The Neolithic people in Britain continued to live side by side with the remaining hunter-gatherers and some of them even interbred and had babies. The dominance of the hunter-gatherer haplogroups indicates that hunter-gatherer men actually may have had higher social status in the early megalithic culture of Britain. This theory is also supported when we look at the phenotypes of the new samples from the paper. Their DNA shows us what they probably looked like and the scientists identified the most likely skin, hair and eye colours for all the samples. While Mesolithic British and Irish people had dark skin and blue eyes like these reconstructions, Neolithic farmers looked like these reconstructions with lighter skin and brown eyes for the most part. The 53 Neolithic British and Irish samples listed here all had light skin and brown eyes except for one which had blue eyes and one which had dark skin. They didn't belong to different races they were all genetically very similar but there was more diversity in skin complexion in those days. But the weird part is that these two exceptions were both elites from passage tombs. The dark skinned one was the God King, NG10 from New Grange and the blue eyed one was his relative, CAK533 from the carrow complex all the way on the other side of Ireland in County Sligo. It seems like the inbreeding may have been a way to preserve the Mesolithic phenotypes of the extinct hunter gatherers which came to be associated with the elites. Remember before genetics the only way people could identify bloodlines is through phenotype so of course things like eye colour and skin colour were very important to them. Now overall these elites were still overwhelmingly descended from Anatolian farmers who didn't have dark skin or blue eyes but through inbreeding you can select for certain rare phenotypes in order to preserve them and that's something that animal breeders do. I find it very interesting indeed that there is a local legend surrounding the Callanish stones from the island of Lewis just north of Argyll, which holds that they were built by black-skinned men long ago. This bizarre legend has never made any sense to me until now, it is possible that a refugia of inbred megalith builders with archaic hunter-gatherer phenotypes held out on the Western Isles of Scotland. And here's where things get really weird. Back in 2002, a skeleton labelled SUERC-9172 was excavated on a remote island just seven miles away from the Callanish Stones. It was dated to the Bronze Age about 1000 BC, so that's over 1500 years after the fall of the megalith culture, and the replacement of I2 lineages with R1B haplogroups from Eastern Europe. But this man had the old I2 haplogroup from the dark skinned hunter gatherers. Looking at the whole of his genome he was pretty much the same as other bronze age beaker people, but his paternal lineage predates the beaker invasion, and even predates the megalith builder invasion going all the way back to the Mesolithic. The enormous structures that our megalithic ancestors erected are all the more extraordinary when you consider that they had no metal tools. Metallurgy and the Bronze Age began with the invasion of the beaker folk, so the megalithic farmers were literally living in the Stone Age. Everything they made was done using wood, bone and stone, This jadeite polished axe head is absolutely exquisite and would have taken over 1000 hours to make. The jadeite was mined from high up in the Italian Alps close to the gods and the axe was already centuries old by the time it got to Britain. Such ritual axe heads were phallic representations of male virility. This one was placed in the river Avon as an offering. These kind of stone axe heads would be really useful for clearing forests as well as in warfare. People used to say the Neolithic people were peaceful but that theory is dead because several battle sites have been discovered including one at Crickley Hill near Cheltenham where the earthen ramparts of a defensive settlement were attacked around 3300 BC leaving hundreds of flint arrowheads near the entrance. The inhabitants were slaughtered by arrows and clubs, including the women and children. Bodies have also been found in long barrows such as Wayland Smithy and Bella's Knapp of people who were killed by arrows and clubs. We know weapons when we see them, but as for these carved stone balls, which are found all over megalithic Britain and Ireland, we can't be sure what they are. They are frequently found close to megalithic structures such as stone circles and passage tombs, so some people think they are related to them, or possibly even used in the construction process, but five such balls were found in the Neolithic settlement of Scarabre in the Orkney Islands, which wasn't a religious site. Scarabre is the best surviving example of a Neolithic home, because the majority across Britain and Ireland were made of wood and mud and have long since rotted away. But the lack of trees on the Orkneys forced its people to build stone houses and leave this fascinating legacy of the megalithic people, not just in the form of grand tombs of inbred god-kings, but just a simple hearth-based house for a normal family. If you want to know what happened to these people and who replaced them, then you should check out the two videos I made on that subject. You've been listening to the Survive the Jive podcast, a podcast about history, genetics, and ancient paganism. Survive the Jive is also a YouTube channel, and if you check that out on YouTube, Survive the Jive, you can hear all kinds of interviews with experts on genetics and history, as well as many of my own videos on a variety of historical and religious subjects. If you sign up to support this podcast, on patreon or subscribestar then you can get access to exclusive content including live streams that only my patrons can see as well as discounts on my merchandise the theme song for this podcast is sunnah by Walkinsman. hope to see you next time and goodbye